Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, how a modified USB Ethernet adapter can steal your credentials, the new compression algorithm from Facebook that might actually be legit, and the terrible, terrible, no good security of a consumer NAS. Plus, your questions, our answers, a fun roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 283 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on September 8th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live streams and all the downloads over Jupiter Broadcasting are powered by the incredible Scale Engine. Go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us for 283 weeks in a row without missing a beat is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, sir. Hello, Chris. Hello. Thanks for watching. It is good to be here. In fact... Speaking of never missing a week, right off the top, let's mention, in order to keep that track record going while you're Mm -hmm. uh, traveling, we'll be recording two episodes of TechSnap next week over at the JBLive.tv page. So check jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. You might be able to join us because we'll be starting earlier and possibly going longer, so there could be a window there where you come and get some TechSnap. So a little PSA. Yes, uh, because... The week after next, I will be uh, in Belgrade, Serbia for EuroBSDCon. Wow. <clears throat> wow. Boy, that passport of yours, Alan, that passport yep. of yours is getting some use. Good for you. you, know, uh, you should... And if you can't make it to that, because it's kind of a little late notice at this point, yep. uh, make sure you sign up for MeetBSD in California. Right. It's uh, November 11th and 12th. There you MeetBSD.com. go. Uh, sign up before the end of September, and you get $30 off the admission price. Go there and say hi to Alan. Do you know? If, <clears throat> do you know? Is, I know. I've probably asked you before, but is Chris going to that too? Yes, he is. He's actually one of the speakers. Well, there you go. So when you go to one of these conferences, Alan, you, especially if you got yourself a MacBook, or I right here, I have a, I have a laptop. It's a it's an Apollo, or I'm sorry, it's a it's a Librem 15, and no Ethernet, no Ethernet on these things. So you go into your you're going to a con, you're going to one of the conventions or a or a fest or a meetup. And somebody hands you a USB Ethernet adapter. What could go wrong, Alan? <laughs> you like that yes. segue? <laughs> uh, so, yes. Um, this is a story about a modified USB Ethernet adapter that can steal your Windows and Mac uh, network credentials. Womp womp. So, uh, security researcher Rob Fuller has discovered a unique attack method that can steal PC credentials from Windows and Macs and possibly Linux, although he hasn't tested Linux yet. Uh, so his thesis was, if I plug in a device that pretends to be a USB Ethernet adapter hmm. and, and the computer on, and it pretends that there's a computer on the other end of this virtual network, right? So it looks like it's an Ethernet adapter and it pretends that it, it is and that there's a computer at the other end that wants to talk to your computer. Um, can I capture credentials from a system even when the system is locked, right? So the researcher used a USB-based uh, device um he had two different ones one was the like hack five turtle and the other one was the called usb armory oh okay yeah the uh, usb armory and, and the hack five turtle yep seen both of those yep. yeah so they're little generic usb devices that sure. you can program you could just buy yeah so uh he bought one of those or used those and he modified the firmware uh to run special software that uh makes the device looks like a plug-and-play USB Ethernet adapter. But when you plug it in, it configures your computer to use this USB adapter as your network gateway, as your DNS server, 
and your Windows proxy auto configuration daemon. <laughs> um, That's so obvious, but yet elegant all at once. Yes, uh, at the top of his blog post, he's like, this shouldn't be this easy. Um, why is this working? It's like I had to try a bunch of different ways to make sure I wasn't fooling myself. Right. And he's like, also, I'm definitely not the first person that's thought of this. No. Just saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the attack is possible because most computers will automatically install any plug-and-play USB device, uh, even if the machine's locked, right? Because it, it'll, it'll run like as system or administrator to install the driver. That's the vision. Yeah. So that means even if a system is locked out, the device still gets installed. He says, now, I believe there are restrictions on what types of devices are allowed to install when the machine is in a locked out state on newer operating systems like Windows 10 and OS 10 uh, El Capitan. But Ethernet slash LAN adapters are definitely on the whitelist and get installed anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, when installing a new rogue plug and play USB adapter, uh, Ethernet adapter, the computer will give out the PC's credentials needed to install the device. Uh, Fuller's modified device includes software that intercepts these credentials and saves them into an SQLite database. Uh, the password is in its hash state, but that can be cracked offline using existing technology. Uh, the researcher modified device also includes an LED light that blinks once the credentials have been stored. So just like in a spy movie, you plug it into the computer, uh, it installs the software, does the things, Right, so you can see it, it takes a couple seconds to boot because it's a, I think it's running an embedded Linux, uh, but the light starts blinking mm-hmm. uh, and the device is running. Yeah. And after about thirteen seconds, the device shuts itself down and the light stops blinking uh, because you have now captured the password. It is just like a movie where they hook it up, light flashes for a few seconds. Come on, beep 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 beep. Come on, come on, we gotta go. And then they have it. And thirteen seconds later, done, and you're done. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the attacker would need physical access to the device, or at least just to be able to hit the USB port, uh, but the attack only takes about 13 seconds. You could easily do that to the person beside you at the coffee shop. How hard is it to plug a USB device in, you know, <laughs> especially at conferences, right? So at conferences, people yeah. trust the other people around them enough that they'll yeah. lock the computer. They, they definitely won't leave the computer unlocked, but they'll lock the computer and go to the bathroom. Or when it comes to these types of devices, too, uh, how often do people show up at conferences and they forgot a, an adapter or a connector? Right. Well, and they, well, in this case, this one's not actually a USB Ethernet adapter. So it wouldn't work like that. But you could make one that did that, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, bigger one, how often do you see uh, stores or other places, like the UPS store near here that I use, uh, they have a computer for their point-of-sale system. Mm. And it's kind of sitting there on the counter and the USB ports mm-hmm. on the back are completely exposed to me. Yeah, yeah. I could very easily surreptitiously plug this in, yeah. complete my transaction with them yeah. after the 20 seconds, unplug it, yeah. put it back in my pocket. Yeah. Nobody would notice. I've seen, I seen a lot of old dusty USB ports just right there at the point of sale. I mean, yeah. it's... Like, is it the, the hair, the, the barbershop has one like that. The, the UPS store has one like that. <laughs> Lots of them have these US, exposed USB ports. Yeah. Uh, and it is, you know, it, in this case, it doesn't even matter if the machine's locked. Uh, the attack... Uh, was tested against more versions of Windows than I would have bothered with. They tried Windows 98 Second Edition, Windows 2000, 2003, 2008, etc. Uh, and newer stuff like Windows 10 Enterprise, OS 10 El Capitan, and so on, works on all of them. Hmm. Uh, the device pretends to be the Ethernet adapter and uh, provides access to a network where there's a DHCP server that tells your computer, oh, here's your DNS server, here's your gateway, 
oh, also here's how you should configure to use our proxy and everything. And so, you know, there's a whole set of attacks you can do just with the WPAD stuff uh, outside of what this device is doing. But then, uh, you know, the machine tries to talk Samba to the, you know, since a big brother, it's like, I want to talk to you. It's like, so here's my username and hash password. And, uh, you know, the device records that. And once it's done that, uh, you know, you unplug the device, you take it home, uh, you run your password cracking algorithm on your mm-hmm. video card for a while. You know, NTL MV2 is not that hard to crack. And then, boom, I now know what the password was for that. And I have the username and password. I come back next time. Bloop, I'm in. <laughs> Nobody knows how I got the password. Interesting, too. He gives his quick take on the USB armory versus the Hack 5 LAN turtle. Yep. Uh, pros and cons. Uh, the big one is that the LAN turtle is like $50 and the armory is like 170 or something. Yeah, yep. But, uh, you know, he's got instructions for both of them to build your own version of this. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> pretty amazing how bad it is. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, I think the point that uh, he mentioned at the top of his blog, I'm probably not the first person who's thought of this. No, yep. you probably are not. Yeah. A lot of these stories make me think that, that. You know, Windows assumes that everything that's on the LAN with you is trusted. And it's only the Internet that contains bad things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that's a great story. We got links in the show notes, including links to the researcher's blog if you'd like to check it out when you play your own version of TechSnap at home. And I want to mention IX Systems at ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. That's the landing page to go to to support this show, learn more, and you can grab that white paper they had put together. It's nice too. It helps grease the wheels up the chain of command if you want to talk about IX Systems with your company. I think IX Systems is probably your best solution for any any real workload where you need a system that's reliable. I mean, yep. that's pretty much it. I mean, they really they they really market themselves as being built specifically for open source workloads. They involve themselves with the open source community. They've built these incredible systems around I, uh, the Intel processors. IX Systems is really invested in these areas, and so they double down on that. You know, storage enterprise servers built in a, uh, using open source, and that's really their expertise. Well, but the anything that's that critical they, really they can custom, run on IX Systems. They custom build each server to for you, right? They don't have a bunch sitting on the shelves that they're trying to get rid of. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, but they also they do that quickly, right? It, you, you don't spend forever waiting for the machine to ship. They give you a date, and it'll mm. ship that day. Yeah, I uh, think what I've what I've what I've really liked about it is their insight into each different types of workloads that even I've had to talk to them about, which has only been on a couple of occasions. But also the stories we get back in from the listeners about yeah. reaching out to them, and they totally grok what you want, what you're trying to achieve, and how to build a system that best accomplishes that. They've right. got great partnerships well, the, with the Intel. Big and IX Systems was started by a bunch of sysadmins. Yeah. Not, you know, it's, it's a lot different than a typical hardware company, yeah. and it's not a big company like Dell, but they're big enough that they have the relationships with you know, Intel and Western Digital and mm-hmm. LSI and so on mm-hmm. to get what they need to, to build these systems. But, and they can, you know, they're not going to have any trouble if you need them to build 400 machines for you. They, mm-hmm. they do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're also still small enough that they care about you and your one cheap server for your house. It's true. Uh, and that's pretty... Whatever that's, scale you need that. That's pretty great. And I really like the way that that's all come together, the company they've built over the years, the way they've invested with the community. And like Alan was just talking about the Meet BSD conference coming up in California being uh, hosted by IX. Yep. Uh, and, you know, the warranty service has been great. I just finished doing that for one of my storage servers where a bunch of drives failed at once. Uh, and, uh, you know, get the replacement drives were shipped out, you know, uh, that the day I reported the problem. 
and uh, mm. FedEx got him here from California to Canada in like a day and a half. Yeah, and uh, you know swapped them all in. It was very good. I love uh, hearing that. It's, you know they're currently built custom designing some hardware for me. So I need uh, more video transcoders, but we want to use the NVIDIA video cards this time, uh, like uh, Quadro M4000s. So it's a, like a full-size PCI Express card. It's only single slot, uh, so it would still fit in the 1U. But the problem we had was in a typical uh, design for these, the cards aren't meant to be that long. And so basically the SATA ports with the cables coming out of them stick right up where the fan mm-hmm. is on the video card. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that, yeah. And it's like... You know, there's a couple of motherboards that are a bit slimmer that maybe that'll work or uh, use, you know, 90 degree SATA cables. Uh, mm. But then, you know, because the SATA ports are lined up this way, if you put 90 degree cables in the second cable, you can't put it there because yeah. it won't fit. And so on and all kinds of fun stuff. That sounds like a very interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. Mr. Jude, you and I just got to say one more thing. We recommend you check out iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. There you go. Tech, the TechSnap stamp of approval. For a server hardware vendor. I've got them, you know, also, I've got a couple of FreeNAS minis myself over the years. Been playing around with uh, FreeNAS 10 recently. Really impressed where that's going. Just really like everything they're doing. Everything from the small business all the way up to the enterprise. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Thanks, ix. Okay. What is this What is this story from Facebook? I like I like myself, my, my, my compression standards. I've got plenty to, to work with. What's this craziness? What is this shenanigans? Yes. So uh, Facebook has released Z Standard, uh, a new compression algorithm. All right, I'm sold. Uh, BSD license. <laughs> uh, mm, okay. So unlike the new Dropbox algorithm we talked about a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. this one's designed – or sorry, the Dropbox one was designed specifically for uh, images, right? It, it only worked with JPEGs. Right, right. It was very specific about JPEGs. This one, however – is general purpose. It's basically designed to replace GZIP. Oh. Uh, kind of reminds me of um, Google did one called like Zopfly or something, which was some kind of Swedish bread. Uh, the big advantage of Google's version was it could still be decompressed by the regular uh-huh. GZIP. Right. Uh, that was right. neat. So basically, it got higher compression than GZIP, I think, uh, but could still be compressed by old fashioned GZIP. Z standard instead is uh, more about getting more speed instead. Uh, so there are, so say, uh, today, the reigning data compression standard is deflate, which is the core algorithm behind zip files, gzip, zlib, etc. And it has been for two decades. And it has provided an impressive balance between speed and space, and as a result, is used in almost every modern electronic device, and not hmm. coincidentally, is used to transmit every byte in the blog post that we're currently reading. <laughs> because web servers will compress with gzip or deflate, and your browser will decompress it and right. end up saving you bandwidth. Uh, and hence why Facebook is probably interested in something like this, huh? Exactly. Uh, over the years, other algorithms have offered either better compression or faster compression, but rarely both. And uh, Facebook believes they've changed this. So uh, there are... Three standard metrics used to compare compression algorithms. The first is the compression ratio. That is the original original size of the file as the numerator compared to the compressed size as the denominator, uh, measuring a unitless, uh, which basically gives you a unitless uh, compression ratio. So a compression ratio of 1 to 1 means that the file didn't compress at all. It's the same size. And a compression ratio of 2 to 1 means the file is now half the size. Right. Uh, Then there's compression speed. How, many, how quickly can we make the data smaller, which is measured in megabytes per second of input data? Right? 
And then uh, lastly, we have decompression speed, which is how quickly we can reconstruct the original data from the compressed data. And that's measured in megabytes per second uh, on the output side. All makes sense. Yeah. The type of data being compressed can affect these metrics. So many algorithms mm-hmm. are tuned for specific data types, like English text or genetic sequences or rasterized images, which would be the JPEG one that uh, Dropbox did. Right. However, uh, Z standard or Z standard, like Zlib, uh, is meant to be... Um, a general purpose compression for a variety of data types. To represent the algorithm uh, that Zstandard is expected to work on, in this post we've used the Salisa uh, corpus, which is a set of files of a bunch of different types that are used to benchmark compression. So the post compares uh, the best of the modern compression algorithms, uh, LZ4, which is what ZFS uses because it's really, really fast, um, Z standard, which is uh, Facebook's new thing, libz, or which is what gzip and deflate and zip and all those other things are based on, and then xz, which is what most Unix distros have now switched to because you get the better compression ratio. Mm-hmm. So that's why you see a lot of like tar.xz instead of tar.gz anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they don't talk much about uh, bzip because it's slower and not as good as xzip, uh, and it really hasn't had much work done on it in uh, at least about 10 years now. Uh, but anyway, so when we compare those, we see that LZ4 has a weaker compression ratio, uh, 2.1, uh, versus you know Zlib's 3.11 and Zstandard's 3.14, but it compresses at 450 megabytes a second, hmm. whereas Zlib, your Gzip, only does 23 megabytes a second. Yeah. But uh, compare that to Zstandard, which can do 136 megabytes per second. Still, though. So we see Facebook's algorithm is compressing the f- data about the same amount as gzip but doing so a lot faster right right we're getting uh you know uh 136 megabytes a second instead of 23 and then xz is getting even better compression right 4.3 uh to 1 but it only compresses at 2.3 megabytes a second so it's going to take a lot longer to get that level of compression now all of these are with the standard setting uh, as we know with gzip and xzip and so on, you can specify a level between 1 and 9, and the default is 5, and that you can basically you know, worry more about speed by going to a lower number like 1, or more about compression with a higher number like 9. Okay. Uh, but these are all done at the standard mid- middle level. Uh, then you look at decompression speed, and you see the reason why ZFS uses LZ4 is decompression speed is 2.1 gigabytes per second. Uh, because the point with ZFS is we want data that will decompress so uh, definitely faster than your hard drive can provide the data mm. so that we're sure that it's not going to bottleneck the system. Right, right. Although uh, ZFS does also offer gzip at all nine levels as an option. It's just slower. Uh, but anyway, so LZ4 is 2.1 gigabytes per second. Z standard is 500-ish megabytes a second, where Zlib is only 280 megabytes a second. And then XZ is 62 megabytes a second. Uh, so you can definitely see that uh, what Facebook has done is made an algorithm that's about the same compression as you get from gzip, but quite a bit faster. Yeah, quite a bit uh, faster. So when they actually compare, inst- uh, so that test there was comparing the algorithms. Okay. Uh, then they have a second test here where they actually compared the um, the command line tools uh, that they were using instead of the um, the actual Just the algorithm, algorithm. Yeah. kind of. The map in them, version, yeah. In this version, they're actually comparing the files being operated on disk. Uh, here, um, you get the same compression ratios as you would expect, 
But uh, GZIP did 20 megabytes a second, and ZStandard did 100 megabytes a second. Mm-hmm. So there you got about five times faster compression. Right. And then for decompression, ZStandard was 460 megabytes a second, and GZIP was only 125. So 3.6-ish times better. What's interesting is that um, they've also uh, done the levels thing with ZStandard, but instead of... Sorry, instead of having the standard 1 through 9 like they did for GZIP and XZIP and so on, uh, they actually offer 22 levels of <laughs> compression. hey And uh, you can see on this graph here, uh, they compare the is that blue this line. One here? Yeah. yeah. The blue line is GZIP and the yellow line is the new Facebook algorithm. And you see the different um, compression levels. So we see at the lowest one, we get uh, less compression, but it completes relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. And then as we crank up the levels... You know, you see GZIP tops out here at like a 3.1 to 1, whereas uh, the Z standard actually almost reaches 4 to 1 compression when you turn up the levels, although it takes a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, yeah, uh, in the end, uh, at the same compression ratio, Z standard compresses 3 to 5 times faster. At the same compression speed, uh, you get... 10 to 15% smaller than GZIP, uh, and it's about twice as fast at decompressing and about three times as fast at compressing. And it scales uh, at much higher compression ratios while sustaining lightning fast decompression speed. Yeah. So that's the big thing is even if you spend more time compressing the data, decompressing it takes about the same amount of time. Hmm. It strikes me too that, uh, I mean, it's great that they're open sourcing this. Uh, mm-hmm. But they really don't need anybody to adopt it. They could just adopt it themselves, but the but well, I guess you'd have to have browser it, support, right? Yeah, so if they wanted to use it uh, on all the HTML that goes back and forth, uh, which we'll get to in a minute, uh, then yes, they'll want browsers to support it. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking it's like, ooh, how about hooking this up to ZFS? <laughs> I bet you are. Especially with the 22 different levels. Now, I don't know if it makes sense to include all 22 of those levels as possible options, but... Uh, it could be interesting. So uh, it says, ZStandard improves upon your old Zlib by combining several recent innovations and targeting modern hardware. In particular, uh, by design, Zlib is limited to a 32 kilobyte window uh, to reduce this memory usage, which was very sensible in the early 90s when GZIP was invented. Now, maybe that's a bit modest, hmm. right? Okay. Uh, but in today's computing environments, you can access a lot more memory than that, right? Everybody's phone has at least a gig or two of RAM. So uh, using a little bit more isn't going to hurt. So <laughs> ZStandard has no inherent limit and can address terabytes of memory, although it wouldn't do that by, uh, it would rarely do that. Uh, for example, the lower of the 22 levels uses only one megabyte or less of memory. Uh, for compatibility with a broad range of hmm. receiving systems where memory may be limited, hmm. it's recommended to limit your memory usage to eight megabytes. Okay. Uh, this is a tuning recommendation, though, not a limitation of the compression algorithm or the format. Uh, but the big difference is uh, the format is specifically designed for parallel execution. So today's CPUs are very powerful and can issue several instructions per clock cycle, right? So even though they're about the same gigahertz as we had a couple of years ago, they can actually do multiple operations at the same time at that many gigahertz. Uh, so what that means is it, the cost of doing uh, out-of-order execution uh, can be worse. So you see, if you're doing the code where it's like A equals B1 plus B2 and C equals D1 plus D2, then 
both of those can be happening at the same time in the CPU and it'll be fine. However, if you do A equals B1 plus B2 and C equals D1 plus A, in order to figure out what C is, you have to wait until the other thread has finished processing B1 plus B2 and putting it into A before you can do the other part. Uh, so they specifically designed the algorithm to avoid having to wait on other bits of the code. Hmm. And the other thing they did was what's called a branchless design. So they got rid of a bunch of basically if statements or if else branches and so and while loops. And instead, uh, just have a branchless design where they just do the code a bunch of times. Uh, and what this means is that the CPU can do more of it at once instead of having to wait because, oh, this while loop is like, while this value, value is less than this, and so each iteration of the loop, you have to wait until you figure it out, finish that loop to tell if you can run the next one. Uh, and, you know, the compilers try to optimize this a bit, but, you know, by having the code actually be branchless, it definitely increases the stuff. Hmm. And then they go on and talk more about some of the much more complicated stuff like finite state entropy and so on. Next but, generation probability compressor. That's a good name. <laughs> uh, but they do lots of interesting stuff. The other thing they talk about is, this is where I think it comes into what they, where they would want browsers to support it, is dealing with small data. There's another use case for compression that gets less attention but is quite important, and that's hmm. small data. Mm -hmm. uh, there are use patterns where data is produced and consumed in small quantities, like JSON messages between a web server and a browser, which are typically only a couple hundred bytes. Or, you know, web pages that are maybe only a few kilobytes. In most of those cases, the compression you get isn't that much. The other case for that stuff is things like databases, right? This is one of the oh. big reasons why hosting a database on top of ZFS is so great is because the transparent compression ZFS does means it takes up less space, but it means you get more throughput, right? Because while your disk can physically only do 100 megabytes a second, if you're compressing the data 2 to 1, your disk now effectively does 200 megabytes a second. Uh, so they talk about uh, how they change, how that affects databases and so on, and how it affects flash and write endurance and all this other stuff. But in particular, they show how they get the compression on uh, a JSON file. So it looks like here they actually have a train command where you can teach uh, Z standard about your your JSON dictionary, and it will actually get better compression on it after that. <laughs> Damn, that's going to be appealing to folks. Mm -hmm. That bit right there is very cool. So here they got uh, a set of 1,000 users takes 850 kilobytes uh, of data when stored uncompressed. Uh, naively applying either uh, gzip or zstandard, typically uh, individually each of these cuts them down to about 300 kilobytes. But if you use the pre-shared dictionary for zstandard saying, you know, each user is going to be a JSON document that looks like this, so these, I'm specifically telling you, these are the parts that are definitely going to be repeated. Um, then the uh, Z standard, when trained that way, uh, can get that same 850 kilobyte file to 122 kilobytes instead mm. of kilobytes. My mobile thanks you. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially when you could tune it this way to say, hey, it's always going to look something like this. Um, and then they talk a little bit about picking the different uh, compression or compression levels. Uh, Z standard provides a substantial number of levels, basically 1 to 22 currently and maybe more in the future. Uh, this customization is powerful but leads to tough choices. The best way to decide is to review your data and measure deciding what trade-offs you want to make. 
At Facebook, we find the default level 3 suitable for many use cases. But from time to time, we'll adjust this slightly depending on our bottleneck, right? If you want to saturate the network or to disk spindles, maybe you want to, you know, bias to a little bit less compression. Or if you're trying to save space, then you want to bias to higher compression. Uh, but yeah, ultimately, it gives you the option to kind of tailor it to whatever you need. Uh, and they say, when in doubt, just stick with the default level of three or something uh, from the six to nine range, which is a nice trade-off for speed versus space. Uh, save level 20 plus the cases mm. where you really, really want to save space. And so then they have a little bit of talk about using it, uh, in this case, to compress a MySQL dump hmm. and uh, seeing how that works and comparing uh, using tar uh, with Zstandard versus tar with gzip. Uh, on compressing, I think that's a Linux kernel, uh, and uh, Z standard takes three point one seconds, and and uh, Gzip takes thirteen point seven seconds. Uh, they also have a Zlib compatible wrapper hmm. API yeah. uh, to make it easier to drop in as a replacement for uh, typical Gzip, which I'll have to look at that because that might make it even easier to implement in ZFS. <laughs> uh, so said, while they finally hit 1.0 they're still ready uh, and it's ready for production use they're not done with it yet uh, they're looking at making a multi-threaded command line uh, compression for it uh, make it even faster so that it can work uh, kind of like uh, PI GZ which is a parallel GZIP uh, there's also uh, XZIP already has support for multi-threaded uh, compression which can make a big difference as well um, they're also looking at more compression levels uh, for uh, or new compression levels for both uh, compression and decompression, allowing even faster compression and higher ratios. Oh, sorry. They're looking at new levels in both directions, as in higher and lower, hmm. uh, which is, it's like, so yeah, I understand having 1 to 22, but maybe you should have had like 10 to 32 so that you did left some space for you to go lower. They can always just redefine the numbers, I suppose, but. Uh, they're also looking at a community-maintained predefined set of compression dictionaries for things like JSON, HTML, and common network protocols in order to save. Because uh, even I thinking of that now, uh, HTTP2, where everything's always compressed, uh, you know, HTTP headers have a very standard format where you could maybe uh, save a lot from this dictionary type thing, especially since a lot of those fields, while the value isn't given the same all the time, there's only a finite number of possible values. And turning it into like basically an enumeration of those instead of compressing the text might actually get better compression too. Because hmm. normally you would only gain that advantage uh, if that appeared many times in the file and the compressor figured it out. But if everybody that's using this has already pre-shared a list of this is what HTTP headers look like uh, or this is what this type of a JSON document will look like. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. I like that. Good find, Alan. Good, mm-hmm. fine. Thanks for telling us about that. Any other thoughts? Uh, nope, that's about it for that one. Hmm. Well, let me tell you about our friends over at DigitalOcean, who are sponsors of the TechSnap program. DigitalOcean is the simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up a system in no time. You can start in less than 55 seconds, and the pricing plans start at only $5 a month. But also consider that uh, DigitalOcean does hourly pricing, which is pretty great. Look at that. Three cents an hour. Alan, three cents an hour. It's just, I I just, I don't even. If you go all the way down there, that's 0.07 cents per hour. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah. 
You know, I also, uh, yeah, and they have, and it's, you can flip it over to monthly if you want to see it that way. But if you use our promo code, SnapOcean, you get a $10 credit. You could run that for quite a while to try something out. You know, just recently I was over on DigitalOcean looking at some of their recent tutorials on setting up Python. And uh, they also on here have a good tutorial on uh, FreeBSD and ZFS if uh, Alan has got you a little curious. But I found myself spinning up a droplet the other day to set up a Nileus N1 intermediary server. <laughs> if you don't know what that is, well, don't, just use Thunderbird. Don't, don't worry about it. But anyways, uh, it's great because I didn't want to have to – first of all, I was on Arch and I didn't want to have to try to convert their Ubuntu instructions over to Arch. But I didn't want to have to worry about a whole bunch of different packages. It's just nice to be able to go to DigitalOcean within seconds. I have a really fast rig. They have data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, and Germany. And they have a super good interface. I love it. Check them out. DigitalOcean.com. Use our promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. A great place to try out FreeBSD for the first time or spin up a Linux rig they got. Fedora and Debian and CoreOS and CentOS and, of course, Ubuntu. And they have application stacks. They support containerizations, which depending on whichever one you want to use, it's great. DigitalOcean.com. Thanks, DigitalOcean. And thanks to you guys for using that promo code SNAPOcean. SNAPOcean. Okay, I love the title on this uh, next story. Who hasn't been there, at least on some device? Hopefully never on your NAS, but in this case, so I lost my NAS password. <laughs> this sounds like this guy probably had to end yes. up on, going down a journey. <laughs> yes, although uh, most of the journey turns out that uh, that NAS you bought at the store is probably terrible. <laughs> like, terror, terror, terrible, terrible. What? What? Okay, tell me about this. Yes. Uh, so uh, this is a security enthusiast and works at uh, Cloudflare. But uh, he says, <laughs> I got my Western, uh, he got his Western Digital My Book World Edition 2 NAS out of the closet. Oh, a world the, edition. Yes. The reason I went uh, to the closet to get it is that I had locked myself out of SSH. <laughs> and uh, in the meantime, I forgot most of the passwords for this thing. Mm. Uh, says, I miraculously still remember the password to my regular user, but the admin password is nowhere to be found, and uh, you need the old one in order to set the new one. So I started poking around to see if there was any way to recover it. One of the most common vulnerabilities in these thingies is allowing anyone to download a config backup that includes all the juicy passwords. And indeed, this screen looks quite promising. Yeah, so this is like, you know, you go in there to restore configuration, save current configuration. Yeah. So you get so a, as a regular user. So as a regular user that's not the administrator, you can download the config, which has the administrator password in it. <sighs> Pretty lame. Um, so he downloads it, but it's all gibberish. And he's like, oh, well, this looks like base64 encoding, except the instead of the regular plus and minus or uh, like equal sign uh, that they normally use, uh, it had curly braces. So he had to do a slightly modified version of base64, but he base64 decodes it and runs it, and it it's all <laughs> random. <laughs> okay. He ran it through a, a, a tool that you normally use for firmers and so on, and it basically breaks down what percentage of the data is in each different range of characters. Mm, And if you see an equal distribution across all the different ranges, it means the data is actually random, which almost always means it's encrypted, right? Because any other data wouldn't be so perfectly random. Yeah. Uh, So then he was like, oh, so it's encrypted. Uh, He also knows that every time he downloaded it, it was different. Oh. It's like, rumor. Uh, Anyway, then his uh, friend suggested, ha, 
mandatory open source uh, releases usually have a license file or some other indication of what libraries they used, right? Because they have to include all the licenses from the open source code they use. And so that tells you which bits of code they use. So maybe it'll tell you, you know, which uh, library they use to actually do the encryption. Hmm. Uh, yeah, of course. Better it does. than that, what Western Digital does is give you an entire tireball of all the open source code they used, <laughs> which right? they probably are supposed to do by yep. the licenses that are. Yeah. Yes, although uh, I don't know, they kind of just bundle a whole bunch of code together and threw it at you. It's not really an organized way, which is something I see common with these type of things. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, turns out uh, in their release they included everything, including some stuff that looks like they might have. Like it was some of their own code that they open sourced. Uh oh. <laughs> I don't know if they did that on purpose. Huh. But it had the PHP script that actually generates the config when you download it was in the tarball. Well, that's lovely. Or, or they reverse engineered it from the firmware. It's a little unclear. But either way, they got to look at the code that actually does it. So uh, we're a little bit further down now. There's, there's the dump of the uh, stuff. There's the tarball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's like there's commit logs in there and everything. But here's yeah. the here's code the system that actually download config.php. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it looks like it's a tarball that's encrypted with something called EncodeX, and it has a fixed password. So you scroll a little bit more, you can see the password is just a couple of random characters, uh-huh. not very long. Uh-huh. But the source code for that EncodeX thing is right there, and it looks like it's uh, Blowfish encryption, which isn't very good anymore. But um, So he says, so we, uh, we have the config file. Is it over? No. So uh, basically, he took the, because he had the source code, he got the, decode x.c and was able to hmm. decode the encrypted file and when he looked inside it's xml <laughs> of course yeah uh, so he says so we got the config file is it over nope no passwords uh but actually if you look they're all hashed passwords this is this system does everything wrong it's using unsalted md5 so when you see the password there it's uh dollar sign one dollar sign which is good that's md5 you know uh, at yeah. least it's it's MD5 crypt, not yeah. just MD5. Yeah. Uh, but then another dollar sign. So they used no salt, <clears throat> which kind of defeats the purpose of using MD5 crypt <laughs> instead of just MD5. So you're doing the MD5 a hundred times, but using no salt, and so that means somebody probably has a rainbow table for saltless MD5 crypt. Um, and actually, if you look above, it turns out they're using plain MD5 as well. Ugh. They're storing it that because they needed it in all these different ways. They yeah. store the same password in like eight different formats so you only ever have to attack the weakest one the weakest link which is like this plain md5 um or actually it might be worse is one of those looks like it's uh the old landman password hashes from windows 98 that you could crack in like <laughs> minutes <laughs> uh so anyway uh <laughs> So my comment is, I've never seen anyone do MD5 crypt with no salt before. I didn't even know that that would work. <laughs> I would expect an error if you do that. But I guess uh, an error would give you like a blank password, so I, I see why it works. But anyway. So they reversed the process and created and modified the config file, re-encrypted it, and uploaded it. It took them a couple of tries to get it right, but eventually <laughs> it worked. Uh, so instead of having to brute force the MD5 there, they just overwrote it with an MD5 that they knew. Yeah, sure. What could be a good option for them there is they could have actually put one in with a salt at least. <laughs> or more importantly, because it's actually using the, the crypt system, it's more than likely it would have actually taken a better password, like a, a SHA-256 crypt. That would have been... Because it's a modular crypt system. How funny sure would that have been? just Linux in there. And it, you could just... 
by doing this hack, you could upgrade the password. <laughs> of course, it's still storing a plain MD5 of your password, so it's, it, you know, that wouldn't be worth any. Anyway, so they uploaded the new config, and uh, now he had the root password and was able to take over his device. He says, great, fine. Is it enough? No. Uh, he locked himself out of SSH by adding uh, an allow user directive to the SSHD config, and it still wasn't allowing him in. <laughs> uh, so this is his first realization. The whole web GUI runs as root. Uh-oh. And that change web admin call that actually uh, takes the uploaded config file, that you know, calls the password command. Like when you change the root password, it calls the password command and reads ETT shadow and does stuff as root. Oh, of course it does. Uh, so when you upload a new config file, it just decrypts it and untars it as root. There you go. So this is uh, plus a- the fact that it's probably a busy box implementation of tar rather than the full tar uh, might mean that the oldest trick in the book works. Creating an archive with a fully qualified path like slash etc slash sshd underscore config in it and hoping that it gets extracted uh, directly to the absolute path. Right. So he tried that. No luck. Uh, it complained that there was no config file in his tar in his uh, encrypted config file. So second try. He uh, since we know it gets extracted to slash tmp and then copied to the right place. They tried uh, naming the file in the tar dot dot slash etc slash sshd config. Uh, but no, that didn't work either. But hey. Uh, we can extract as much as we want to slash TMP. So basically, every time you're doing this, it's not cleaning up every file that you created, only the files it's looking for. Mm. So he first uploaded one that it makes a symlink. Uh, it creates a file in slash TMP called root that's a symlink to slash. Um, and then he uploads his new config that tries to extract uh, root slash etc slash sshd config. And that'll follow through that symlink and... Uh, overwrite the SSHD config on the on the NAS with the one he wanted, <laughs> and it worked. They're in. Uh, so that means a, a regular uh, unprivileged user was able to replace the SSHD config file on the NAS, uh, and, and obviously change the root password. Both of those shouldn't be able to happen. Wow. Uh, yeah. He says this is all nice. But I started from a vantage point, right? I had a regular user account, which I remember the password for. What if we had no account on the NAS? Yeah. What if yeah. it wasn't my NAS? Yeah. Uh, for example, extracting the config, it looks like that PHP file has no access control at all. Is that possible? Oh, God. Uh, so, yeah, if you can crack any user uh, from the MD5, you can then go zero to root. So if you can download the config file as an unprivileged, as, as no, without logging in, mm-hmm. then you just have to break any one of the passwords. Mm-hmm. Because once you have a regular user, you can upload a config, yeah. and you're in. Uh, Zero to root. Yes. Turns out, even worse than that. Oh. Oh. <laughs> all actions are actually unauthenticated. If you're not logged into the NAS at all, no. it will answer with an HTTP 302 redirect. Well, that's what you expect, right? Except for it will then proceed handling the request and send the output as if you were logged in. So you can just send it the URL or So yeah, if you just if you just, you know, say, hey, here's here's the config file, I'm not logged in, it returns a redirect, but then it keeps doing the thing anyway. Wow. Now your browser is going to see that redirect and follow it and ignore all the extra output from the web server. Right, but it's still happening. But it is there. (laughs) 
and, and you know, if if you're doing an upload, obviously it works. <laughs> That's so he says, amazing. let me repeat this. If you're not logged in, the only thing the system will do is add an extra header sending you to the login page and then carry on obeying whatever you asked it to do. That is remarkable. It's like walking up to the, the guarded gate and they're like, sorry, sir, you can't come in and then open the door for you and shove you through. And still argue at you that you can't come in. Yeah. Wow, that's great. Yeah, so most browsers will respect the header and the user would never notice. <laughs> and I'm sure that's they tested it. Oh, it works great. It's like, nope, nope, not at all. If you, if you had looked at, at Firebug or Wireshark or something, you would see that this is totally not working. Uh, so with an administrator password reset trick above, we can get full escalation from unauthenticated to admin and root on the box, completely pwned. He said the hardest part was emulating the browser request with curl well enough to actually upload the file properly. Hmm. Uh, so That's yeah, the hard part. Don't huh? expose these things to the internet and don't worry so much if you lose your password. Well, you know, it's funny though. So many of them ship with plugins or ship with the ability to install plugins and services that the first thing you have to do is connect it to the internet to get those yep. things to work. Yep. Well, connecting to the internet is one thing. Exposing it to the internet is a different thing, right? Yeah. Like if That's you're actually portable to it so people from the internet can connect to it. That's the bigger issue than if it's behind that. And, and, you know, you can go out and download updates. That's fine. Yeah. People from the internet can connect to it, then you're boned. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, in the end, he also solved the mystery of why, how he lost his root password. It turns out all the password fields except the login form have maxlen equals 16. So when resetting the password, I pasted in the password from your, my login manager. So when you originally... So when you log in, it will take the whole password. But when you're setting the password, it limits it to 16 characters. Hmm. Which doesn't make sense because they're using MD5. <laughs> Crypt. And so on. So, uh, anyway. Yeah. Moral of the story. <laughs> yes. Please, please just use a free NAS. Yeah, really. Yeah, geez. Don't, don't, don't buy one of these things from somebody else. I've been tempted. But I have been tempted in the past. Just knowing, but if I, yeah, I just couldn't. I, I don't think something like this would do it for me. They're so terrible, mm-hmm. and you know they just—they're not upgradable. They're not expandable. They're not up like they're—they're they're not gonna. Western Digital is not gonna make new firmware for this thing. No, right? Whereas FreeNAS is constantly under development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, that's a great story. And something that's actually used by some people that would look at the code and, or, you know, something that's—it's uh, good enough that looking at the code doesn't immediately show you how you could root the thing. <sighs> Just, I mean, just so easy, so so low, so low hanging fruit. Great that they did that, and then wrote about it. Um, that was really, that was really fascinating. I'm yeah, just... I found this actually because he was, uh, he did a blog post recently uh, about brute forcing OpenBSD's full disk encryption, mm. and uh, that led me to the story about his NAS, and I thought that was quite good. Mm-hmm. Very reminiscent of those uh, Western Digital USB encrypted hard drives. Mm-hmm. How terrible they were, except yes. for this even worse, and yeah. on a BHP and. Just so terrible. Oh, boy. All right, Alan. Well, let's take a moment and talk about a company that does it right, and that is Ting. TechSnap.Ting.com is where you go to get a $25 discount off your first Ting device or from a Ting plan if you bring a compatible device and you support the show. TechSnap.Ting.com. Ting is mobile that really makes sense. This is something that I think if you were if you were coming from another world and arrived at Earth – this is how you would think the humans on this planet would pay for wireless. And I, I, I am told it works a lot like this outside the U.S. 
But in here, in the U.S., Ting is sort of a trendsetter, and it's kind of a beautiful thing to watch. You pay for what you use. So you don't, you don't pay for maybe like 600 minutes of minutes or 600 messages and six gigabytes of data. Like you don't, you don't pay for what you might use. You just pay for what you do use. So if you know how to use Wi-Fi to download your podcast, then you're going to use less data. If you know how to make VoIP calls, you're going to use less minutes. If you don't use text messages, you use something like Telegram or WhatsApp or whatever you kids use, then you're going to use less text messages. So you only pay for what you use. But the real cherry on top is there's no contract and there's no determination fee. And if you're even moderately technically inclined, one of the things you'll really like is they have two cellular networks you can choose from, CDMA or GSM. And I think definitely one of the best things about Ting is their customer service. They have really passionate customer support. You get to talk to an actual human being. From Canada. From Canada, too. Yeah, that's a good point. And they have really great controls to manage the entire experience, to set thresholds and alerts, to turn devices on and off. It's really nice. They have right now, they have an ongoing sale on the Moto E second gen, $57. They have a whole great range of devices, including internet phones, the Samsungs. They have some really great Samsungs, from, ones that we don't normally talk about on there that are actually like really competitive phones. And they have the Moto X Pure Edition, the OnePlus the Nexus is you could also go directly to Google Play and buy them and bring them over to Ting. And still, if you go to techsnap.ting.com, you'll support the show and you'll get a credit if you bring a device. Remember, since they have CDMA or GSM, you might be able to switch. And one of the things I love about Ting, their blog, consistently good stuff, even if you're not necessarily a Ting customer. This is maybe an opportunity to support the show and read a little more, techsnap.ting.com, and then check out their blog. They're talking about the new Roku, the new NVIDIA Shield uh, actually, it's a tweak to the NVIDIA Shield the, and uh, the Fire TV players for uh, us cord cutters out there. Super nice post. They dig in a little bit to uh, some FCC filings for the NVIDIA TV Shield. I love that device. So I'm glad they're writing about it. A bunch of good stuff on the Ting blog about them and about other things. If you're a cord cutter, it's definitely worth checking out. TechSnap.Ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. All right, Mr. Jude. So I believe there was a little pie shenanigans on this week's episode of the BSC Now program. Is that true? Maybe a little bit. <laughs> it, says, it says pie. Oh, my. So I'm thinking it. Yeah. There's there a, a little bit of talk about the Raspberry Pi 3 and uh, oh. what's working and what's not working yet. But really, the thing you guys are really talking about. Getting right here? What are you really talking about in this episode? Ham radio, right? Yeah. Uh, we talked about amateur radio, general embedded development, and cool. uh, stuff like that. That's pretty nice. BSG Now episode 158 for you hamheads. Go check it out. Also a little pie chat in there uh, with a special guest. Episode 158 of the BSG Now program is out. You can get it in HD because this is about the midway point of the TechSnap program. Good time to go get your next Alan Jude program. So that way you don't have a gulf of Jude, right? You want to go from Jude to Jude, back to back Jude. That's why you got to go get BSG Now 158 over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. And John writes in with our first email this week. And he says, I was wondering, what is the best way to speed up slow hard drives or disks when running that ZFS? I'm using... Stop, stop there. Get faster disks. Yeah, boom, boom. Okay. <laughs> I'm using ZFS on a laptop where I'm running one of my pools off a of slow external flash media. 
Would I benefit uh, by using an SSD that I have at my disposal as an L2 ARC or S-Log? I've well, f- first, uh, it, if you're... If you have an SSD, why are you using a slow external flash? Yeah, that's right. That was what I like, thought. Especially, it makes it sound like you know you have a USB stick you're running it off that's like 32 uh, gigs or something. It's like, well, if your SSD is bigger, why wouldn't you just use the SSD? Now, maybe it is the reason is because he needs to move this pool to another computer at times. Uh, and he wants to just speed it up then, uh, in which case an S-Log might help. But remember, S-Log only helps in the case of... Uh, synchronous writes, which are usually only databases and, and very specific things that say, I don't want to continue until the writing is done. Uh, whereas most you know, file operations, like copying files around and reading files, are asynchronous, and they're not going to be helped by an S-log at all. Okay. That's an interesting setup, John. I'm curious what he's got cooking over there. Yep. And then he asks, um, He's also heard that sometimes adding an L2ARC or S-Log mm-hmm. can actually slow things down. Yeah. Uh, S-Log generally won't slow things down, although you know if you have an all-SSD pool, adding an S-Log is not going to help. But oh. uh, Now, an L2ARC, yes. So in particular, everything that's in the L2ARC, there has to be a reference to it in the regular ARC. Right? So the ARC is in RAM, and the L2ARC is on an SSD. It's for stuff that won't all fit in RAM. But the L2ARC takes up some space in... RAM to say, hey, that file, that's over on the SSD. So it, I think it's like 72 bytes. Or, it's some smaller, uh, or 100 and, I think it's 176 bytes or something per entry, whereas normally the metadata is a bit bigger. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, that means if you have a, like a lot of L2ARC, like say two terabytes or something, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to take up a huge amount of your RAM and there's going to be none left for caching files in RAM. And all of a sudden, you know, Sort of not what you're caching going for. less in yeah. faster RAM probably would have been better yeah. than caching all that on an SSD and not having you know so while L2ARC allows you to have extra fast cache in the event where you can't get any more RAM if you don't at least have a, a lot of RAM then the L2ARC is possibly actually going to push more things out of RAM onto the SSD which is actually slower okay. so you really have to look at your cache hit ratios and uh, decide if it makes sense. Right, if you have a low cache hit ratio, adding an L2 arc really isn't going to help that much, um, because you, it's just going to be full of stuff that never gets used anyway, and it's going to push the little bit of stuff where you are hitting in RAM out of RAM and make it even slower. Hmm. That's that's great. So yeah, um, you know, if if the flash thing is so slow, why not just use the SSD? If it is because you need to move it around or whatever. Um, most likely a slog isn't going to help because you're not running a database or something off. It really does depend what you're writing to it. Um, he's using, uh, he doesn't say what OS he's running on his laptop, but if it's Linux, he doesn't have Dtrace to see if it's synchronous versus asynchronous. Uh, if it's FreeBSD, you can run GSTAT um, with the flag. Um, sorry, I'm trying to find the one here. Uh, minus O. And that will show the number of flushes, and that might help you determine. If, if your number of flushes is really high, then a slog might help. Okay. Uh, but in general, probably not. You know, uh, In the end, you have to write the disk to the slow device. You know, if, if you have a, a big SSD that you're buffering it to, it still doesn't help because ZFS has already optimized it quite a bit, and you're writing data in big chunks, you know. If if the device can only write ten megabytes a second, if you mm. you know 
write a couple of gigs to the SSD and then copy to it later, it's still going to be just as slow, right? And eventually, you know, you're going to want to, if you're, if the point is you're removing the device, you can't do that until it's done copying all this data. Otherwise, the data is not on the device. So, yeah, uh, in the end, if your disk is so slow, it's that big of a problem, you just need a faster disk. Uh, an S-Log can help in the case of synchronous writes like NFS and databases where it's not so much that it's not fast enough is that it takes it's too much latency every time you need to do a flush. And that's where the S-Log helps you. The L2 Arc is caching for reads only, so it only improves reads. And, uh, you know, more RAM is always a better answer uh, first, and only when that's not possible do you go to the L2 Arc uh, with having to keep an eye on the fact that the L2 Arc does take some RAM for every block of data that's in the L2 Arc. And so having too much L2 Arc will actually push more stuff out of RAM and actually slow things down. That makes sense. That's good to keep uh, in mind. If you want more details discussion on these topics, check out zfsbook.com where you can get FreeBSD Mastery ZFS for the basics of getting started with ZFS and FreeBSD Mastery Advanced ZFS uh, if you want to get into actually tuning it for specific workloads like running, you know, storing BitTorrent or databases or file servers and big files versus little files and all the different things you might want to do. Great. Link to the show notes. Alex writes in about managing multiple PFSense boxes. Hello, Chris and Ellen. I've been learning PFSense for the past year, and it's quickly become my go-to solution as a router and firewall. As a network consultant, I've started deploying these to my clients as they upgrade their infrastructure. I love it. Because I've started to see a potential problem. Now that I'm going to manage these devices, now that I have all these devices, how I'm going to manage them remotely? How will I update PFSense as new releases come out? Basically, I'm looking for a solution to manage more than a handful of PFSense boxes from a central position. Thank you. Yep. <clears throat> so there's a couple things. Uh, the upgrade process in PFSense is pretty good. It uses a uh, system, well, the, I think current versions uh, use a system from FreeBSD called NanoBSD, where there's actually basically two system images. Um, and you overwrite the old one with the new software and reboot. And if it doesn't work, you reboot again and it goes back to the old one. So it's basically fairly safe to do it remotely as long as uh, you have the ability to remotely reboot the thing or ping someone on the site to reboot it for you uh, if it doesn't work. Uh, but it, usually, uh, it rare, very rarely happens that the update doesn't work properly. Um, then obviously your other option is if you've got it on, depending on the type of hardware you're putting it on, if you have uh, some kind of out-of-band management system, like uh, whether that's just a serial connection to it or if that's something like IPMI or ILO or DRAC or whatever. I know the PFSense we managed for um, TV Ontario was hmm. uh, an HP server, so it had a ILO that we could use to, to manage it remotely if uh, we couldn't get in over the regular SSH and web interfaces <clears throat> over the VPN. Um, as far as managing multiple PFSenses, they're um, in... I don't know if it's the newest or the next version of PFSense. Uh, they have a, a RESTful API you can use now so that it's easier to manage a whole bunch of them uh, from a central place. And uh, especially if you have a whole bunch in one autonomous network that you need to deploy. You know, if you have two of them working in high availability, you want to deploy the, deploy the new firewall rules on both at the same time, uh, possibly, and so on. So, yeah. yes, uh, PFSense is working on code for that and uh, an API for that so that you'll be able to do that. Um, otherwise, yes, uh, some kind of out-of-band management, whether that's serial or uh, a BMC, is probably your best bet for, you know, disaster recovery type situations. 
yeah, that's definitely something to consider when you're working with somebody's edge networking equipment that's the that is the failing point between their company well, getting on the internet or not. Since if normally your PFSense would be your VPN endpoint that you would VPN into to sure. get to the other stuff. Sure. Yeah, that's and true so, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so really your answer is two PFSenses with CARP for high fail for failover, and then you basically update one of them and only once it's working then you fail back to it and then upgrade the other one. <laughs> I uh, think, yeah. But, you know. Uh, we'd love to hear more about uh, what you're doing with uh, managing many PFSenses and so on. And I'm sure the people at PFSense are interested in yeah. uh, uh, opinions of people that are actually doing this for when they're designing their API. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know how far along that API is. I know they've been talking about it for a while, so I think it's actually uh, at least partway there. That's a good idea, Alan. So Tyler writes in with a question about open source home networking. He says, hi, Chris and Alan, longtime fan here. I'm writing, I'm wiring my house up with Ethernet for the first time. Ooh, all right. And I ran into a newbie question I couldn't solve in 15 minutes after doing some Googling and DuckDuckGoing. <laughs> I like that DuckDuckGo gets thrown in there every now and then. He says, uh, what is the difference between a router and a switch? I inherited a PFSense firewall, one that runs on an embedded Atom board and has four Ethernet ports. I want to know if I need an additional switch or if a PFSense will act as a switch. So stopping there for a sec. Uh, so yeah, in a switch is basically uh, a smart version of a hub. So in a hub, you basically, um, it wires all of the Ethernet cables together. It basically just all connects them all to a bus so that when a signal comes in on one cable, it goes out on the rest of the cables. Um, a switch is an improvement on that in that it basically keeps an index of all the MAC addresses. Um, and knows what MAC address is on what port. So when a packet comes in and it's trying to go to a certain person, it only goes out the one port that that computer is on instead of every port. And this allows, uh, basically with a hub, if you had 10 computers, only one computer could talk at a time because its message that went out was received by all, other, all nine of the computers. And so that meant that you know person A and person B couldn't both talk to person C at the same time. Uh, or sorry, person A and B, if they were if A and B were talking, C and D couldn't also talk because the wire was already in use. Mm -hmm. In a switch, it creates virtual circuits. So when A wants to talk to B, it goes into the switch, it figures out which port B is on, and it sends it out only that port. So now C and D can talk to each other at the same time and you get more bandwidth that way. Uh, that's what a switch does. A router uh, is basically designed to handle the traffic where you don't know the macro at the far end. Uh, so basically the router talks between your current network, all the people plugged in the same switch as you, uh, and instead deals with getting it to uh, a far away network, like the internet. What's confusing about this is most things that you buy at Best Buy or whatever that's called a router actually has a switch built into it, right? So in your typical router, you have like this one port that's like yellow or blue or something that you plug your internet into. That's a nick in the, in the router. Then there's a whole bunch of regular ports that you plug your computers into. Those are actually all ports on a switch. And there's one hidden port on that switch that's actually wired into, as a NIC, into the router. So the router only has two ports, one that goes to the internet and one goes to the switch. And then you have this switch that you plug all your computers into. And it basically means the device does double duty. It does both things. Mm -hmm. Your PFSense won't by default. And you really don't want it to because it's, you know, it's not meant to do that. Um, and so, yes, what you want to do is take your PFSense and uh, hook one of those four ports up to a uh, switch, and then all your people into the switch, and you're good to go. Nice. All right, so ready for the second part of the question, sir? 
All right. Uh, he says, uh, what would be your ideal build for an all open source home network? I'm thinking of a cable modem from an ISP. Uh, you know, tell them I'll have a Cisco firewall, a PFSense firewall, to put it in there, uh, instead of an actual Cisco, but you'll tell me as a Cisco. A low-power Atom server for routing um, the uh, all of that. He wants to know... Oh, yeah. So, uh, right there, it's, I'm slightly confused. So, he has a PFSense firewall he already has, and then he was going to get a low-power Atom server uh, to do the routing with some form of BSD or Linux router OS. Uh, PFSense is a router already, right? So, you don't actually need two separate things. The PFSense is a firewall and a router, so you don't need a separate router in addition to the PFSense. Right. So, that saves you one whole box already. Yeah, and uh, he asked what our ideal builds were. I mean, both of us... I have some microtechs too. I like those too, but I really, I, my, if I'm going to build a firewall, I always build a PFSense firewall. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, just the PFSense only thing is I, I would say just don't overbuild it. Yeah, you don't want to waste money because, you know, uh, uh, even uh, at uh, NetGate, the company behind PFSense, uh, they make this new one they call the Micro Firewall or UFW. Uh, it has two gigabit NICs in it and it's like uh, this big and uses like no power and has a USB serial and all the fancy stuff, uh, and it's uh, very cheap and takes up, like, no room at all and very little power, and it doesn't have a fan, so there's no noise. Mm-hmm. Really nice uh, device for that. Yeah, and you don't need a separate uh, low-powered atom to be a router because the PFSense is already a router. Um, then for storage, something like a FreeNAS Mini XL or whatever works great uh, to run your VM backends. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you can run your VMs on whatever you want. Uh FreeNAS, newer versions of FreeNAS have Beehive built in, so you can actually run a couple of VMs on them. Uh, or you can do something like uh, a lot of people like Proxmox. I've never used it, but uh, it's uh, basically an appliance for running a whole bunch of VMs. And I think it can use external storage from your FreeNAS. So. Oh, yeah. Yep, it is, and it works yeah. with NFS and whatnot, too. Uh, and, and he also... Uh, he also access point, uh, yeah, you can just anything, uh, possibly even including the little one that came... Uh, on the if there's one built into the modem you get from your ISP like it's common, you can just uh, disable DHCP and so on in the uh, in the modem from the ISP, so it doesn't give out addresses. And then the PF the when the users connect to the Wi-Fi on the modem, they'll get sent uh, to the PFSense. Um, he also uh, mentions in here he's 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 curious about any uh, tips for turning equipment on and off from his mobile device. No big ideas off the top of my head. Uh, I've I've been looking at building something like that. Uh, the Onion Omega, the little like fifteen dollar com- uh, mix yeah, computer. Yeah, I bought, yeah, yeah. Um, It has a ten dollar add on called that are relays, which you can hook up and it can turn on and off uh, one hundred and twenty volt AC. So if right. you modified a regular power bar to be hooked up to this, you could turn everything in, plugged into that power bar on and off by SSHing into this thing that can connect over Ethernet or Wi Fi. That's pretty cool. He says, uh, also, by the way, uh, he holds us responsible for him uh, becoming uh, involved in the IT industry with a 150% increase (laughs) of his salary from when he was a janitor. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, I'm glad you love the show, Tyler. Thanks for writing in. And then he mentioned uh, Wake on LAN. I think there's a Wake on LAN plugin for PFSense. So you leave your PFSense on and then you can connect to it and Wake on LAN other devices. Yes, there is. And you know, he was talking with the Wake on LAN, he was talking with the context of from his phone. You could always bring up maybe the PFSense admin interface on your phone. Uh, I don't know if the new PFSense is out yet, but they have a 
new one that has a new interface that's much nicer and will scale better on the phone. Mm, if you'd like to send us your questions, we need lots of them. And I think we're sitting at inbox zero right now for the TechSnap program. We need, we need way more than we normally do because we're recording two shows next week. So please help us out. TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com to send it directly or just go to the contact page. And if you're listening to this within the first week, we definitely need your help. <laughs> so please do send in your questions, uh, whatever they might be. We love answering them. And that contact form never made it easier. Could be easier because we have an army of robots that sit back there. They take those messages and deliver them to the show. It's it's a huge investment. We had to buy out an entire data center, clear out all the computers, and just install robots. But they're standing by to deliver your message to next week's episode. Smells so much better than the monkeys. It does. Yeah, it really does. The monkeys are still running the calendar, but, you know, we'll get them replaced eventually. All right, so that's all of the feedback. Now it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, this is that crazy music. Me's on the roundup for stories that didn't fit at the top of this year's show. But we still want to give you some links to follow up on after the show. And some of these links came from our Worldwide Intelligence Network at techsnap.reddit.com. Uh, this this first one might have actually. Uh, Sophos gave some Windows users a bad weekend as it accidentally starts detecting winlogin.exe as malicious. <laughs> that will hurt your computer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, now, I can blame it because there have been many winlogin.exes that have been malicious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, usually the key is looking at the actual path, and if it's the proper Windows one, don't kill it. They say it was a, it was a minimal number. A minimal number. Mm. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. All right. Well, at least Sophos had the courage. Right, Alan? The courage. <laughs> Tell me about this story. Yes. Uh, so, you know, Apple's described their uh, killing of the headphone jack as courageous. I like it. Uh, and so on. But what it actually is, is them uh, locking down their walled garden even more. Uh, in particular, you know, the 3.5 millimeter jack is a robust, familiar, secure, well-documented docu- interface that people have used. Uh, and that's the problem, is that people around the world have reliably used it without Apple's permission. In particular... People dun, have done dun, dun. like turn a phone into a thermometer with it or into a payment system, right? The, the was it Square thing mm-hmm. plugs inside that port and then you can swipe cards. Mm-hmm. Or, or you turn it into a 3D scanner or lots of other interfaces that you can plug into the standard port and turn your phone into anything. The problem is with that, all those inventions didn't require those people to pay a license to Apple to work with the iPhone. Mm. Right? Now with this new interface... Only certified devices are allowed to use this connector. Mm-hmm. So you basically have to have paid the Apple license fee to use the connector before you can actually build a device that will use it. How is that going to be able to, you know, nobody's going to be able to invent something at home that uses this now. Mm-hmm. Like probably, how you, will, probably mean Android will get that uh, job. Yeah. Uh, and then devices will have to be adapted to, uh, to the iPhone after, I guess. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. I, I see this much more as Apple choosing to lock things down uh, rather than them being courageous in their ability to get rid of a port. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we don't even want to talk about their overly expensive uh, AirPods that uh, are basically designed to be lost. <laughs> right? You don't even, it's like, you know, they should at least have little loops in them somewhere where you could, like, you know, oh, maybe they, there is, is there? You know the phones used to have the thing where you put the little phone charmer on it or whatever? Yeah. Something like that where you could actually be able to hook something so that you could have a yeah. cable 
Yeah. They get completely lost if you want, so they wouldn't just fall out. Yeah. It's like imagine just, you know, get bumped on the subway and it falls out and stepped on and uh, there's another $160. See, sounds like a great plan from Apple. Boy, I'll tell you, you know what else? You know, remember when Last.fm lost all those usernames and passwords? Well, it looks like the passwords were pretty easily cracked and a lot of them are surfacing online now. Ars Technica has the uh, write-up about the contents of a March 2012 breach at Last.fm, which has surfaced on the internet during the collection of other mega breaches, they say. That's, what are you going to do? I guess here's the contents of the database are somewhat representative uh, of where passwords were in 2012, they say. Of the 41 million passwords that were successfully extracted, 255,000 of them were 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. The most next popular password by 92,000 users was password. Was password. See, uh, Last.fm wasn't uh, rocking the... uh, the enforcement of the uh, mm-hmm. password requirements there. <laughs> We're not bothered with that. You know what? Maybe you're part of the problem, chat room, and the audience at home. Maybe you're part of the DDoS problem. What's this about, Alan? Yes. Uh, so this is uh, basically trying to promote the best common practice, or BCP38, which basically rule that says, hey, if you're an ISP, an enterprise network or university or service provider, only allow traffic to leave your network from IP addresses that belong to you. Mm-hmm. Because anything else is a spoof, and you know if everybody did this, most denial of service attacks would just go away, right? Uh, and so yes, they have this uh, routing manifesto, which is the uh, Internet Society's mutually agreed norms for routing security or manners. Uh, you know, get <laughs> it manners. see what they did there, yeah. Uh, so they're suggesting that, but also some other things you can do. There's the Spoofer Project, uh, which presents their. First view how the industry will be measured, uh, which networks are naughty and which networks are nice. Basically, it allows you to run this thing and see if your ISP is doing the right thing and try to reach other networks with spoof packets and see how they work. Uh, And then uh, reporting on networks which uh, contribute to the spoof denial of service attacks. Uh, So they're working on, uh, you know, naming and shaming the people that do the bad things. And... uh, if you're, you know, a CEO or CIO or whatever at your organization, the different things you should do, whether, you know, ask your team what their anti-spoofing plan is or installing a spoofing client and seeing what's going on or checking with your upstream uh, service provider to see what they're doing, you know, check with your corporate data center, check with your cloud network and see what they're doing about it. You know, uh, how much could we save if we just get the couple of cloud providers to not allow uh, spoof traffic to leave their network? Mm-hmm. And a bunch of other things. Good post. Good post. Mm. This one I thought would be interesting for Chrome users out there. Google's post, moving to a more secure web, they say, to help browsers, help users browse the web safely. Google's going to start paying attention to when a website has a login form, but the site is being delivered over HTTP. So if they take credit card forms or if they have log, uh, password, username type things, on the, they're going to start warning you in uh, Chrome 56 starting in January 2017. Do you remember when Internet Explorer 4 or 6 did that? Like the very first time you submitted a form and it wasn't over HTTPS to give you this warning? Yes, I do remember that. You would uh, never remind me about this again. Uh, Although it didn't have the context to know if there was actually, if that was a username and password form or if it was just any form. Now, maybe actually getting to just username and password and credit card forms could actually uh, be useful. Yeah, it's interesting that they're doing it at that level. 
Isn't that something? So this is a great. I love this. I even just love the headline by the register. This is this is really a good one. Uh, bloke accused of LinuxKernel.org hack nabbed during a traffic stop. <laughs> yes. Uh, so apparently the person the person who allegedly breached Kernel.org back in 2011 um, was arrested in Florida at a traffic stop and has been sent to San Francisco. Uh, and he's got a court date coming up, although he's currently out on bail. Uh, but uh, if they full the full computer fraud and abuse act at him, that would be forty years in prison and wow. two million dollars in fines, which is slightly ridiculous. I think. Yeah, because the crime. The although, hack was just he he got this guy's use, password. Yeah, username and password or SSH key. I think he stole or something. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what's different? This isn't the same as the one that was later. There was one more recent than 2011. Do you remember that one? Um, where they got access to kernel.org's like FTP yes. site or something? So uh, well, no, it was a really bad one. Um, there, I do kind of it does. It's all kind of it all blurs together. All, all I know of the story is that um, the machine that was hosting kernel.org is now quarantined because the the malware comes back even every time you reinstall Linux. Right, and it was something that was post Snowden, wasn't most it? Likely an NSA embed into the fire, into the BIOS. I do kind of remember that now. Uh, but yeah, that was more recent than 2011. But yeah. 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 Anyway, so this is different than that. Uh, or the fall guy for that, I guess. But I don't think so. So apparently uh, it's today's the day to just pass companies around, spin off companies, move things around, shift stuff. Intel is selling its majority stake in McAfee, which I, which I thought was always kind of an odd pairing. But I guess it kind of made sense on so the surface. The is that Intel paid $7.7 billion for McAfee and is selling it. or Well, they're not selling all of it. But most of it uh, for four point two billion. So yeah, McAfee lost some value in that time. Yeah, well, surprise, surprise there. I just thought that might be noteworthy for folks. Um, uh, well, and it'll go back to being called McAfee instead of Intel Security. Right. So tell me about this uh, this router vendor or this. I guess it's uh, yeah, it's a router maker who says I'm not going to patch that gaping hole. That gaping hole. So they make uh, routers that they don't they don't sell them to customers, but they sell them to ISPs, which then. And give them to customers as part of their services. Is, and there was a critical vulnerability that yes. was found by F Search or F Secure. Yeah, uh, and the router manufacturer says it's up to the ISPs to update the firmware on the devices uh, because the manufacturer doesn't have any direct uh, access to the customers. Well, that sounds kind of legit. Yeah. Well, um, it's a little unclear about it. Like, if each ISP customizes the firmware themselves. To actually, you know, I've seen this before, you know, they got their name all over. And the, the color scheme. And stuff And color scheme. Um, but usually they're not actually fixing vulnerability. Like, they, it seems like the vulnerability was put in there by the router manufacturer. And so it's really their job to fix it. And then the ISPs could rebase. Right. On the of course. Of course. But at the same time, you know, the ISPs may have diverged so much that they're not going to rebase their code anyway. That uh, would be bad planning on their part. Like, the router manufacturer probably should be making the patch. Yeah. They're like, well, we'll sell you a new router. <laughs> and otherwise, you know, it's up to the ISP. You know, we, we don't sell a warranty with these, right? It's up to your ISP. So it sounds like everybody's just passing the, uh, the, the buck along and, and nobody will ever fix it. Speaking of passing that buck along, HP has spun off, you know, remember there's HP and HPE. Mm-hmm. 
And now HPE is going to merge with uh, the folks over at MicroFocus, I think is the company. Uh, so HP Enterprise's software arm yep. is spinning off and, and merged into uh, Britain's microinternet. HP Enterprise will receive $2.5 billion in cash, while its shareholders are expected to own 50.1%, or about $6.3 billion of MicroFocus's stock. So HP will have a controlling interest in yes. Micro as well. Yep. So they're spinning it off and then buying Micro, rather than spinning off and getting bought by Micro. Yeah, I guess that would be a good way to put it. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do with SUS in this uh, configuration, since Micro owns SUS. Right, so I guess HPE Micro now owns Zeus. <laughs> right. It's got to keep it up. So yeah, gotta, gotta, I, need like a, I need like a map, a chart to keep it all straight. Uh, this is a great story. Warner Brothers has reported their own site as illegal. <laughs> yeah, so Warner Brothers uh, hires a company to go around and do DMCA takedowns on anything that looks like it links to their movies, uh, you know, torrents and so on. And they also uh, send requests to Google to remove the sites from the search engine. Except for their bot was especially poorly programmed this time, and it requested Google delete all references to Amazon because Amazon linked to the movie where you could actually pay legitimately to stream the movie on Amazon. Do it. They're like, nope, nope, uh, not allowed. Uh, Sky Cinema, which is a British cable company, basically, again, pay legitimately to watch the movie, and they're trying to take that down. But then the real stinger, um, the bot requested Google delist Warner Brothers' website because it links to the movies. Um, do they not understand how... It's their own website and against Internet? Google's thing. Please unlist the Warner Brothers site. I hope they from- do it. Do it. Do it, Google. Do it. Google it when they asked them to delist Amazon. I wish they would do it. Just do it. Just cause total chaos. That's so funny. I, I, I would say they should do it for the Warner Brothers site just to... Oh, of course, nobody goes to the Warner Brothers website anyway, right? Mm, I don't know who would unless you're maybe... I, well, yeah, what would you go there for? Like, usually each, well, most movies have their own .com now, which probably just redirects to WarnerBrothers.com. And really, site. if you want information, you're usually going to an IMDb or a Rotten Tomatoes. Well, that was the other thing, is they also hit Amazon because they tried to take out the IMDb rate listing for the movie. It's like, you're just looking for any mention of the movie. You're not even looking if it's a download. Yeah. you take out, like, Rotten Tomatoes next? Like, Jesus. Well, of course, it wasn't Warner Brothers. They just outsourced to some buddy that claimed they could do it some and, bottom feeder company that this is what they yes, do and, and they didn't have a half decent bot for it even <laughs> they didn't even have a yeah they're not even good bottom feeders uh this is kind of a funny story it kind of tells you like if you really want to collect a bunch of information about people set up a messaging app and then have it get popular <laughs> yes so this is a great one uh, even the Greg says this is awesome apparently the pakistani intelligence service the isi created a messaging app and uh it became popular among the Indian military personnel. So <laughs> okay. They created an app that would allow you to make free calls inside India. Mm. Uh, and uh, so they, you know, got it um, to be popular in the Indian military. And what it would do is upload all the photos, contacts, messages, and phone calls that you make to a server in Germany where they'd be collected by the ISI. Amazing. So, yes, he says, this is absolutely genius. Offer free calling to an, uh, as an enticement to get the opposition to install your spyware on their phones. Very clever and aggressive work by the ISI. Good yes. the great operation. As long as you make a good app and it gets popular, it could work. Yes. So you basically offer free calling to your targets to get them to install the app, and now you've taken over their phone, and you can look at GPS and see where they are, and, oh, look, a bunch of uh, 
you know, Indian military personnel have just moved from here to here. They're now close to the border. Huh. Or, oh, they've all spread out. So they're obviously, you know, not uh, massing their troops at the border currently. Oh, man. So just think of that next time you install that free messaging app or calling app. Let's keep that in mind. Hey, don't forget next week's our intelligence agency is behind Telegram. I know. That's what I was thinking. Probably some Russian one. Um, Don't forget next week's our double recording. We'll be live uh, a little bit earlier. So go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted to your time zone. And we need your emails and questions. So jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact is where you go. Also, it'd be a great chance to send us lots of links and uh, stories for the roundup at techsnap.reddit.com. All right, everybody, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.